Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Laura Scarf. Laura is the director of Business Academy Online, specializing in SIPs procurement training, negotiation, influencing, and emotional intelligence. Laura helps busy procurement professionals achieve their qualifications to help with their employability while also helping them understand and manage their emotions and relationships so they can improve their confidence. So hi, Laura. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hi, Kelly. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I shared a little bit about where you work and what your areas of focus are in my intro, but I'd love to have you share a little bit more about your professional journey, just so folks can get to know you a little bit better before we dig into our main topic. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is actually in procurement. One of my first jobs was a procurement job. I kind of fell into it. And it was a public sector role where there was no purchasing, no policies, nothing. And I had to start from scratch. Um, I enjoyed that. But from that, I got into the public sector, heavily regulated government purchasing, and uh, found that I really enjoyed that. But I liked a little bit of freedom. I was then headhunted from that role into the project space, so working for a consultancy and particularly working on projects in terms of defence and they were both public and private sector. And really it was this role that got me interested in emotional intelligence and nonverbal. I was dealing with different cultures, different ages, different genders, and I was still really quite early in my 20s at this point And it really managed to unintentionally, just to be very clear, unintentionally uh, insult people with my nonverbal behavior or certain different cultural things that I, I wasn't aware of at the time. So this started me on quite a long journey into looking at nonverbal behavior, studying advanced human communications. And then now I am a trained behavior analyst as well. So I kind of bring the procurement side and the behavioral side and try and marry the two together. Because for me, that's what we desperately need in the kind of unique position that we as procurement hold within an organization. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's it's fascinating because, you know, like you said, you you fell into a procurement role, which a lot of us share that experience with you. But then to deliberately go off and sort of pursue this additional level of understanding It is precisely what so many procurement professionals and leaders and whole teams are looking for right now because so much of what we're dealing with on a daily basis goes beyond the stuff you capture in spreadsheets or the stuff that you automate through some digital platform. It truly is those interpersonal relationships and connection points where we have the opportunity to create the most sort of upside value that goes beyond savings. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm sitting here nodding. You can't see me right now, but I'm nodding away. And I feel really passionate about that. And actually something that came from the pandemic and in the UK, obviously, we've had a lot of upheaval with Brexit and so on. 
has been the fact that actually there is this real need for professional skills and this rise of artificial intelligence and automation in our industry, which is only going to take on more, um, has really highlighted this need for, I like to call them professional skills rather than soft skills, but that kind of complicated collaboration and building rapport with stakeholders and the human factor really cannot be replaced in our industry, in my opinion. And so we need this even more with the rise in things like AI. Now, clearly you've studied in this area and and there certainly is a science to this, although it's one of those complicated areas where, you know, we're all human beings and we're all to some extent or or level used to reading body language, reading a room. But when we had spoken about this previously, you mentioned that you try to stay away from behavioral generalizations, that instead you try to lean on the science, lean on some formality, and instead focus on observations that are rooted in that. Why do you think that is so important? I guess I think it boils down to the fact that, one, I'm quite a cynical person in general, and I like to see evidence. But two, I think this really comes down to accuracy and trust. And I don't want to be one of the people out there spreading any particular disinformation. And I think context is so important. We're talking about social science here. And these studies and research need to be able to be trusted. So when I'm training, what I look for are studies which have been replicated, peer replicated. But that's not to say that I won't use studies that maybe stand alone. But one thing that I'm very passionate about is saying that this study's outcome suggests something. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a 100% fact. And I mean, I think as humans, we like to break things down into black and white. And in reality, there is always a lot of gray area. And I would love to be able to say that X equals Y, that you folding your arms means you're defensive. But that's not the case. And in fact, whenever I tell anyone that what I do, the first question I get asked, without a doubt, is does looking to the left, up to the left, mean that I'm lying? (laughs) (laughs) No, unfortunately, it doesn't mean that. Not always, anyway. And there's no Pinocchio's notes. And so Mm -hmm. context is really, really important. And I think there's a lot of times that people want to simplify it and generalize it to make it easy for everyone. But that doesn't make it accurate. And I think accuracy is key here to get those outcomes that we want. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the folded arms gesture. I'm, I'm always cold, like always. It could be July and it's 90 and I'm cold. And I will actually find myself thinking in, in some in-person group settings, especially when there's air conditioning and it's always cranked so high, I'm crossing my arms because I'm sort of instinctively trying to maintain whatever shred of body warmth I have left. But I will think to myself, I don't want to signal to the room that I'm mentally withdrawing, that I'm frustrated, that I'm disagreeing. So it is funny, some of those generalizations, I've never studied any of this, sort of get into our collective conscious and and do become part of the the way we think, but they aren't necessarily sending out the signals that that maybe we've traditionally come to assume. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm I'm exactly the same. I'm well actually I'm the exact opposite. I'm always too hot. But <laughs> I do find that I find it really comfortable to sit with my arms folded. Mm. And it is my kind of go-to setting. So when it comes to body language in in particular, it's not universal. It's culturally and uh, context dependent. And so what we aim to do through our training is to make people aware that 
we're really looking for changes in behavior and to to not say that X equals Y. So just because someone's got their arms folded, they could be cold. It could be comfort for them. You know, there may be many other things going on. And so what we're looking for is potentially when you ask that question in that negotiation and all of a sudden they you unfold your arms and lean forward yeah. or you may lean back or something. We're looking for those changes. That's that's a point of interest for us to investigate. It doesn't tell us what the person's thinking, just that they've made a change and we need to investigate that further. Now, in terms of investigating other changes, some of your work has focused specifically around helping women better understand nonverbal dynamics so that they can use their nonverbal communications or their body language in settings where they need to. What are some of the biological differences? And again, you know, we've already addressed sort of the generalization piece. Mm -hmm. So we know some of this is very broad and might vary by individual. But what are some of the differences that exist between how men and women read and use nonverbal cues? So this is a really interesting question because this is an area that there are a lot of studies on, but there still needs to be so much more research. However, the number of studies that are out there in this area, including one that I particularly find fascinating by Bennett Shewitt and colleagues from Yale University, they've shown that actually there is more activation in the female brain than there is in male brain when reading nonverbal and engaging in language tasks. And what that suggests is that there's biological differences in how we read nonverbal between the genders. And what was interesting is a further study went and had a look at what the um, the amount of areas that were activated or used when reading nonverbal tasks. And they found around 14 to 16 areas of the female brain were used to read nonverbal, whereas four to six were activated and used in the male brain. So this suggests that there are some strong biological differences in how we're interpreting nonverbal behavior. Now, if we think in terms of how all of that plays out, you know, either in a procurement setting or in a business setting, I don't think it necessarily needs to be procurement specific. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about sort of what happens naturally around body language. So are there nonverbal cues that sort of naturally are used by men? There are some. So obviously this, as you said, this depends on, this is the average that we're talking about here. But there are some, some people argue that males have a natural advantage when it comes to nonverbal behavior, because they naturally take up more space than we do as females. And what research has found was, is that taking up space, making yourself larger, Um, leads to a greater perception of authority and confidence. And so men are naturally, on average, taller, broader, and will spread out. And we know that men take up space. There's even a word for it, man-spreading. And in fact, fact, there was an amazing website. I don't think it's still there now. But um, it was called Man-Spreading on the London Underground. And it was a compilation of photos of men spreading out, taking up the most amount of room on a packed underground train in London, (laughs) (laughs) where everyone is literally like sardines, but they're taking up space. And I think this sends signals about confidence and leadership and authority, whereas in society, either consciously or unconsciously, as, as women we are often told to make ourselves smaller, to not take up that space, to cross our legs, to be demure. And all of that 
perception wise is read as not being as confident or as authoritative as men. So naturally they have that advantage in terms of space. And there is another advantage that they have as well, which is their voice tone. Study Mm -hmm. after study has shown that low natural voice tones are associated with authority. There's been hundreds of these, usually linked to actually politics as well, to look at why someone might vote for someone female versus male and vice versa. And high voices, which on average females tend to have a higher voice, are associated with children and less authority. So men have that kind of natural advantage from the start. Now, there are there any advantages that women have? There is one massive advantage that we have and there's still work to be done in this area but I feel confident saying that women tend to be superior in reading non-verbal cues so not only do we read more cues we read them with greater accuracy and we're more responsive to non-verbal cues than men and what's interesting is that a number of studies looked at we, we talk about positive and negative emotions on the face but we've also got a neutral expression. So uh, this tends to be, if it's me, a resting bitch face is my neutral expression, <laughs> you know. But, <laughs> but with neutral expressions, women were uh, more accurate at um, basically decoding or identifying the start of an emotion on the face. So whether it was turning into something like anger or whether it was turning into happiness. So we have essentially this ability to decode and almost interpret another conversation that is underneath the words so that can be really powerful to harness and that can make us really collaborative and effective leaders in things like transformational change when this is a lot of there's a lot of emotional and cognitive load on our colleagues now when we think about that sort of emotional peak even in a business setting I associate that a lot of times in procurement with negotiation, but there are other high stakes situations that we may find ourselves dealing with. It could be a supply chain disruption. It could be a supplier performance Mm -hmm. issue. Do you have any specific advice around nonverbal cues and communication that you like to offer for these sort of high stress situations? I think the key one I've actually mentioned already, but I've got two things that I think are important for any sort of high stress situation. The first one would be to baseline the individual that you're with. And a baseline means their normal operating behavior. And it's important that you understand that there are many different baselines that a person can have. So if I'm in the, say, kitchen area of a meeting with a key stakeholder and we're making a cup of tea or a coffee together, then that baseline will be very different than in that kind of tense meeting about whatever topic has has arisen. And so what we're looking at is what is their normal behavior? Do they speak with their hands? Do they tend to lean in a lot? What do they normally do in this within the majority of that meeting? And then see when you ask a particular question, all of a sudden that individual stops talking with their hands. Their hands go down to their laps and they may start talking a lot in a slower pace. Mm. These are things to note. Now, it doesn't mean that we can read their mind. I wish we could. (laughs) Maybe, depending on what you're thinking. (laughs) (laughs) But it does help show that this is something that has been a change in behavior. So we call Mm. these points of interest. And we want to look for three or more before we jump into any conclusions. 
But I would use that to ask supplementary questions and say, oh, that's interesting. They've had a reaction here. What could I ask to add on to that? So I think baselining is probably the most important area. But the second thing that I would also mention is, and this is a lot of times people miss this, pay attention to the feet. So a lot of the times we are monitoring what's happening on our facial expressions, with our hands, with our posture, but our feet are usually under the table. And so we might, um, let's say, for example, a supplier, if we've if they've given us a price and we're not rejecting it, they might start doing happy feet. You get a little bit of movement under the table <laughs> um, because they didn't expect us to agree to that. I always think it's a nice idea to drop the pen and have a look if you can. <laughs> Um, but what was really fascinating, particularly for females, but obviously both genders do this, was there was um, an interesting study that Jared Nuremberg and Henry Calero talked about, where they videotaped over 2000 negotiations and uh, looked at when and when they didn't come to settlements or agreements. And they found that you should beware of crossed legs. So just like the crossed arms, Cross legs can have a devastating effect on negotiation. They found in the 2,000 transactions that they recorded, the negotiations they videotaped, that none of them came to a settlement when even one of the negotiators had his or her legs crossed. That is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and we we don't 100% know why, but I would hypothesize that it's because of that blocking behavior. Mm. It's almost showing defensiveness and not open, um, you know, open to solutions and so on. So it could be read in that sort of way by your counterpoint. Now, the last thing that I want to get a chance to ask you about, I know for me, whether it's a negotiation or an important presentation if I'm going into a situation and I'm trying to sort of bolster my confidence and maybe think about the image that I'm projecting to the other people that I'm meeting with, mm-hmm. I will put extra thought into what do I wear. And in the most straightforward cases, that means dressing up a little bit more, right? I'll go full suit. I'll think about, okay, you know, what kind of sound are the shoes going to make on a stage? Or you sort of think about how it all contributes to to what you're projecting. But there's also other situations where it's a little more complicated. We're thinking, okay, I want to come and look professional, but I know if I significantly outdress the other women in this situation, I'm creating a bad dynamic for myself. So you're thinking sort of like up and down, what's everybody going to do? Have you looked into at all the role that attire plays in these nonverbal cues beyond the tone of our voice, the space that we take up or, or how we move our bodies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, They call it grooming in the nonverbal community, if you will. Um, And I will say that the majority of studies have focused on male grooming, not female here, which is interesting. So there's a lot of science that needs to be looked at in terms of makeup, in terms of jewellery, and in terms of um, things like nails, tattoos, and, and so on and so on. Um, but I think my favourite study in this area was actually from North London, um, North East London Polytechnic. And they wanted to see whether clothing had an impact on people's perceptions of how likely they were to agree to requests. Because when we're in negotiations, right, we need the other party to agree to our requests and we want to be our most influential, yeah. persuasive version of ourselves. So they got an experimenter and they sent him out into the world and they dressed him in two different uh, outfits. 
One was smartly dressed. So we're talking full suit, tie, everything. The second one was untidily dressed, which essentially was like sweatpants and a t-shirt and some uh, trainers. And they were approaching, the experimenter was approaching members of the public to ask them to help with an advertising survey. And it's no surprise to anyone that the person in the suit was more successful than the person who was untidily dressed. But what the results were, the percentages were incredible. So they found that older men, 60 plus, were 23% more likely to accept the request of the well-dressed man. Older women, 60 plus, were 73% more likely to accept the request of a well-dressed man. But even crazier, younger women, so we're talking 50 uh, downwards, were 98% more likely to agree to a well-dressed man's request. 98? You never get 98%. Is it insanity, isn't it? So it shows the difference. And even there's been kind of not direct replications of this, but there was a a British-Turkish study in 2013 where they were looking at uh, getting people to rate photos of men in tailored suits versus off-the-peg suits. And they asked them to rate them on authority, level of success, and leadership material. And so they got five seconds to look at these photos before making the rating. And every single participant rated the tailor suits as more successful and leadership material. So that's your first impression, five seconds, and that's it. In terms of um, my advice from going um, into this area, I agree with you that it's better to dress up than dress down, but it's about thinking about what you're going to wear. So for example, if you are wearing the suit tie and the full outfit, you know, if people aren't as dressed up, you could potentially take off the tie and maybe remove the jacket to make it a little bit more casual. But if you turn up at a negotiation, and I've actually had this happen someone turned up to a negotiation with me wearing this with say a slipknot t-shirt and some jeans there's nothing that you can do from that to dress that situation up (laughs) and psychologically that then puts you on an uneven playing field Mm. and again it's all about those that confidence um color psychology is still very much in its infancy we've been replicated and so on But there is some evidence that uh, male and female brains take in the color purple in a different way. Hmm. And so if you're talking to a female audience, purple is a great color to have, but maybe not so for a male. Um, Certain studies have shown that blue is the color that is more effective across all genders to show competence and authority. Interesting. Now, I will say, and I definitely don't have a lot of experience on the the color front, more sort of on the how do you dress front. Very early in my career, uh, I was a procurement practitioner. I was on a team and one of my peers went into a supplier negotiation in sort of a small conference room, but where the one side was all glass so we could see it. And you and I are talking mid-October. This happened to be very close to Halloween that year. Mm -hmm. And that colleague had come to work that day in a full big bird costume, like from Sesame (laughs) Street. So I can't speak to the impact it had on the negotiation, but I do know he got in a ton of trouble when he left that conference room. So for anybody listening that's thinking about taking Laura's advice to bear, also don't wear your Halloween costume 
unless you're dressing up like one of the characters from the Kingsman movies. In that case, it might work for you. In you know, in the cases of children's television characters, probably not going to work in your favor. I genuinely wish I was a fly on the wall of that negotiation oh. to see because how that is impressive. I, I've never heard of anything that extreme, but you know, maybe that could work on an extreme level. <laughs> I guess it depends on what you're negotiating for. If you're negotiating for bird seed, maybe maybe that works for you, right? Um, Laura, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's actually given me quite a bit that I know I will be continuing to think about. Uh, but before I let you go, I want to ask you a question that we pose to every guest the first time they come on the show. I'm going to give you a pairing of questions, and you can select whichever one you want, and then there is no wrong answer. So your choices are, what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or if you'd like to go a little bit broader in scope, what would you say heroism looks like in a business context? I think I'm going to go for the broader business context, although I do think that this also applies to a sourcing hero too. I think that somebody who is incredibly self-aware and authentic is really my hero, if you will. Um, A sourcing hero in particular, I don't think rushes to judgment. They take time to think before reacting, which let's be honest, can be incredibly difficult for all to do, we're all human. And my point of view is that I'm super passionate about emotional intelligence for procurement professionals. And as I mentioned, this unique complex situation we're in with all of these different stakeholder requirements plus the issues that we've had over the last three or four years in particular with supply chain um, issues. This creates a very tense and reactive atmosphere. So any individual that operates in this strategic, proactive way, that's self-aware, that has the ability to read others and lead with empathy and compassion, really is my definition of a hero. Well, Laura, for anybody that is just discovering you through this conversation, finds this information fascinating, that would like to connect with you to learn more, what is the best way for them to get in touch? Probably LinkedIn. Um, So LinkedIn, I'm at Laura Scarf or Business Academy Online. I also have a website. So that's www.businessacademy-online.com. Plus, we've just launched a female leaders in procurement um, programs. This is a huge leadership program. So you can find that on www.femaleleadersinprocurement.com. Um, and I think those are the best ways. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, but LinkedIn is where I usually do the majority of my work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for The Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.